for them. Um, all right, we're going to jump in today. We're actually wrapping up this series. We've been talking about for past several weeks uh, this series, this idea of citizens and what it means to think about, to discern, to practice the politics of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And we're, we are in election week. I don't know if we'll know for like three more years who wins, but, but we are in election week, right? So we are wrapping this series up. And I hope, I hope through this series that we have become better at biblically looking at, at, at understanding the way that Jesus intersected the world around him. And I've spent each week asking you questions about your own political positions. And so the first week I asked you, will you filter your politics through the lens of your faith or do you make your faith fit your politics? These are things that I want you just wrestling with as our culture is kind of walking through this. Then I ask you, will you let your political positions be led by love for the people beside you? Have your positions, have your opinions, but always lead with love. And then I ask you, would you give up your desires for a king or queen to submit to the king? Will we walk in that submission, that surrender? And really, where this, this uh, series came from was from a couple verses in the New Testament, a couple letters that Paul wrote. One is in the book of Ephesians, in, in chapter 2, verse 19, here's what Paul says, and we've talked about this. He says, consequently, he says this to the church, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people. And also members of his household, members of God's household. And then in Philippians 3, verse 20, and we talked about this last week, he said, but our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, right? And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So today I want to look at one more passage as we wrap up this series on politics. And I know some of you are super excited. Check, check, there we go. All right, so some of you are really glad that we're finally getting over this and that election week is here. I'm telling you, though, the politics aren't going away. I don't know if you've noticed, um, but this is a good way to end for now. We could keep going, but we're going to end for now. Now, before we read this, I want to hear from you. I want you to just shout some things out, and you got masks on, so you're going to have to be loud. What is it you look for when you think of leaders, right, good leaders that you're looking for? It doesn't have to just be political leaders. What do you look for in your leaders? Any thoughts? Integrity, well done. What else? Courage. Courage. Good. What else? A couple more. Okay. Good. Kindness. Good. Anything else? Anything else? Come on, one or two more. Okay. Knowledge, wisdom. Yeah. Expertise. Maybe one more. Honesty. Good. Yeah. So we, we throw these characteristics out, and I think we all have our opinions on what we look for in, in leaders and what we might look, if you've ever been in a leadership position, you see people who are emerging as leaders. We have characteristics that we look for. Now, I want to show you this passage today, and I want to just kind of break down um, this, this framework that Jesus spells out. This is in Matthew 5. We're going to start at verse 1. Now, here's what it says. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, if you've read the book of Matthew, you know this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' longest teaching in the book of Matthew. And, and so here's what he says. He said, blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, just pause there, because this word blessed is the framework. It's the word that just echoes throughout this passage. And in the, in the Greek, it's the word makarios, which literally means happy or fortunate. 
It does mean blessed, happy, fortunate, blessed. It's this word that he repeats throughout this passage. So he says, and listen to these characteristics that Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, just out of curiosity, does anybody know what this passage is called? Anybody, anybody know it? Yeah, it's the Beatitudes, right? It's the Beatitudes. This is literally, if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount, this is the poetic intro, right? This is the start of the passage. Then he goes into kind of the next two or three chapters just teaching life-on-life stuff. He talks about divorce. He talks about being the salt and the light and the city on a hill. He walks through all these things, but here is where he frames his longest teaching. He's fleshing out, I believe, a list of values poetically that he's going to expand on in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, he gives this list of value statements for those who stand out in God's kingdom. That word, makarios, blessed, 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 happy, fortunate, these, he's kind of saying, these are the ones you're going to notice. In God's way of life, in God's world, God's kingdom, these are the ones that you're going to notice. Now, I want you to check these out, these beatitudes. These are the characteristics that Jesus uses. See how fun these sound. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? The mournful, those who mourn, the meek, those who long for righteousness. Now, look at these first four. I want you to notice These are about moving from spiritual emptiness to a hunger for more of God's presence. This is about us starting empty and then longing for more of what God has to offer to us. When we have nothing, we're poor in spirit. When we mourn, we're empty, right? When we're meek, we are basically without control. We're surrendered to that, and then we're longing for righteousness. And then he goes into the next four, and it's the merciful. It's the pure in heart. It's the peacemakers and the persecuted. Now watch, those first four are where we get filled up, and the next four are how we pour out into the world. The way that we spread the kingdom of God into the world. We show mercy. We become pure of heart. We become the peacemakers, and even in the face of persecution, we fill the world with God's life. Now, how does this list compare to the list we made of what we look for in leaders? Nobody said, I look for my leaders to be really good at mourning, I look for my leaders to be really meek. I look for my leaders to be uh, just full of making peace, right? We don't talk about that. Maybe, maybe a more important question, do these characteristics personify any of the candidates we might be voting for this week or that you already voted for? You see what I'm getting at here, right? Yet, and yet these values depict the ones, the individuals in Jesus' way of life in God's kingdom that seem to be, Jesus says, the most fortunate the most fulfilled, the happiest, the most hashtag blessed. Are you with me? There's a question you have to ask about the Beatitudes, right? It's the question biblical scholars have asked for a long time. It's a really important question. The question is this. Are these statements, is this list really about living in the present? Is it possible to be mourning and find blessedness in the middle of that? 
Is it possible right now to be fighting for peace or to be facing persecution and rejoicing in the middle? When was the last time you were like, praise God, somebody persecuted me today? We don't do that, right? But is it possible that these are about the present or are they more about some future status? Is this kind of the I'll fly away of Jesus's teachings, right? Like someday if I hang on to these things, it's going to be okay when I get to heaven, That's what scholars have asked for a long time. See, in the present, these would be difficult. They don't make sense, and they stand in opposition to the way that our world defines happiness, fortune, and satisfaction. But if they're the future, it seems like we need to hold on for a long time and keep asking that question, when will life get better? Let's look back at that Ephesians passage that I started with. Here's what it says again in verse 19 of chapter 2. Consequently... You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Then it goes on, and it says you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, in Jesus, the whole building, the temple, the holy temple of God's people is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, in this passage, it sounds like the writer Paul is saying, hey, you're being built into this even now. And this was a persecuted church. So to answer this question, are the Beatitudes the defining marks for those following Jesus, or are they about some future promise if we just hold on? The answer is yes. Yes. It is present, and it is future. We live as the people of God, the people of Jesus, in a space called the in-between. It's the place where the kingdom has come to life because Jesus came, because he died, because he resurrected, because he ascended. But it will one day be made whole. And so there's this tension, right, of, of, of mourning and meekness being the most powerful ways of life. I, I ask this question, how did, how did Jesus live these beatitudes. Was Jesus poor in spirit? Absolutely. He was a wandering rabbi. He often often relied on the, the generosity of other people around him, the food of other people. He was, he was willing to embrace that. Was Jesus willing to mourn? Have you read the passage where Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem, where he grieves, where he's found in the garden to be anxious and, and stressed and sad to the point of tears, tears like blood before he goes to the cross? Was he meek? You remember when Jesus stood before Pilate and he surrendered himself to him? Did he hunger and thirst for righteousness? In fact, he told a parable of a hidden treasure and said, sell everything to get the kingdom of God. Was he merciful? Of course he was merciful. He had compassion for crowds and care for children that had been cast aside. He offered healing to those in hopeless situations. Was he pure in heart? He would preach to those who sought him out. Was he a peacemaker? Yeah, he was always teaching about reconciliation. He submitted to the cross. And was he willing to be persecuted? Of course he was. He could have come off the cross in any second. So we might say this, right? This is what I'm getting at as we start today. We don't look for the qualities of the Beatitudes in our potential leaders as a culture. We don't celebrate these same values. They aren't our natural inclination. We prefer the values of our world. You can tell me what you look for in leaders, and you're just like me. You've got a great list, a solid list, but you also look at those candidates and go, I like that one, even when they don't demonstrate those lists that we make. 
And so we see a way of life. When we look at Jesus, we see the values of God's kingdom actually embodied. We see a way of life that lives in tension with the larger world. I was thinking about this again this week, and I've I've told you all this before if you've been here. You remember the Tom and Jerry cartoons, right? You remember how Jerry was always like four steps ahead of Tom? Are you with me? Were there any Tom and Jerry fans? At least nod your head. I can't see your fight faces, okay? So Tom and Jerry, Jerry was always a few steps of head where, where Tom would be chasing him. He'd have a knife. Like, that cartoon was really violent, by the way. He would have a knife, and Jerry would, like, float under the carpet, right? And, he'd, and Tom wouldn't even see him coming, and he'd hit him, and he'd flip him over, right? He subverted, Jerry the Mouse subverted the way Tom was doing life. And I believe in these kingdom values, the Beatitudes, Jesus is doing the same thing to our world. He's saying, I know you don't look for leaders like this. I know you don't think the world functions like this, but I want to tell you who the blessed ones are. I want to tell you who the happy ones are. I want to tell you who the fortunate ones are. It's the ones that are living this upside-down way of life. They're going to turn your world in a way that you've never imagined. So what does this say to us just two days before an election, a voting day? What does this say to us in the midst of a culture that is literally, do you you recognize this? We are literally at war with ourselves politically. What does this say to us in the space where we are more divided than we've ever been? In a culture that looks and chases and gives money to and pursues power and status and destroying any opposition. What do we do with the Beatitudes and how do they relate to our politics? Here's the question, the last question of this series that I'm going to ask you. Are we willing to embody the kingdom in our politics? Are we willing to embody the kingdom in our politics? Are we willing, like Paul says, to live as citizens of God's kingdom? You say, what does that, what does that look like? How do we embody the kingdom? Here, here's the first thing I want you to grab onto today. Our political positions, our political positions, whatever we hold, and I'm talking we corporately, you don't have to all agree with each other. We've talked about that. You don't, have to dis- you don't have to agree with us to be with us, right? But we, as the church united, our political positions must be made credible through the life of the church. Whatever positions we hold have to be proven to be credible because of the way the church does its life together. Now, let me give you some examples of this. Most of us don't think this way. Most of us think, especially politically and ethically, we think about issues from an intellectual and an individual position. We don't think about embodying our ethics or how we can live corporately. In fact, we let our intellect form a position and then we consider what we believe intellectually and how the government, our leaders, and the policies can support that position. And once we've resolved those perspectives, that political belief, we can at least in our free country, like every other pressure group, push for the legislative work that supports our views. Let me give you an example of this that is fresh, hot, it will stay hot forever. When we talk about abortion. If a Christian believes the practice of abortion is wrong, then we do several things immediately following that. We form a belief that the government, first of all, should support our position. That's what we think. We look then for leaders who will support our position. We vote for those leaders who support our position. And if they are elected, we expect them to act on behalf of our intellectual position. If they don't, we then vote for different leaders. We also lobby for the groups of leaders to act on our position. We argue with those who don't agree with our position. So our ethical and our political position on abortion informs what we consider to be our political perspectives. Are you with me? Are you tracking on this? Which is all well and good, by the way. 
and natural and normal, but it may not be enough. Because everything to that point of that example has been built on the values of our world rather than the values of Jesus' kingdom. We believe something, and therefore we push for more influence, power, and status to accomplish what we believe intellectually. And it may not be enough. It's been built on gaining the power. We are, though, an in-between people. But what happens, let me keep pressing this, what happens when we put kingdom values back at the center? What happens when the issue of our example of abortion is filtered through a beatitude perspective? What happens when we zero in on the poor in spirit, the mourning, the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted? When we start to filter our politics through the kingdom framework, we go back to seeing Jesus. We see, as one theologian says it, that Christian ethics, please don't miss this, Christian ethics are community dependent. You cannot have Christian ethics without the dependence of the community, because you cannot be a Christian without the community of the church. That's what we believe. They arise in great part, he says, out of something Christians claim to have seen, that, listen to this, this is going to help you, that the world has not seen. The creation of a people, a family, a colony, that is a living witness that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we believe. Jesus didn't just list a nice set of values and then move on with his life. He embodied them. He stated his worldview of the blessed one, the makarios, the fortunate, the happy. And then he spent the rest of his ministry living those values out and demonstrating through his life what that kingdom looked like. And friends, when it comes to our political positions, the church must do the same. If we hold an ethical or a political position we must begin to embody that position as the people of God. So let's go back to this example of abortion. I've heard so many for so long fighting for a pro-life ethic as the cornerstone of their entire political worldview. And I believe it's a valid cornerstone. Even today, we're hearing regularly the defense of unconscionable other political acts by leaders and groups of leaders justified because they are, quote, for pro-life judges, which again is all well and good, but it is not for the citizens of the kingdom of God. It is not enough. We must be, even as we hold those intellectual political positions, we must be also asking and seeking how we as the followers of Jesus can embody and prove credible the pro-life ethic that we claim to believe. It's not enough to shove it off to political leaders and say, well, we voted pro-life, now let them go impact the culture. We have to embody the pro-life ethic. How do we do this? Let me ask you this in the simplest way. I know how. How are we caring for the women who've been left in the awful position of trying to decide whether they should end a pregnancy? What are we doing about it? What are we doing to, just as Jesus did for us, meet them in the midst of their brokenness? How are we practicing the pro-life ethic, by the way, from conception to the grave? I'm going to say this. You don't have to agree with me, but it is baffling to me how we as followers of Christ can often have the loudest anti-abortion voice and not care about those in foster homes needing provision or adoption or not care about those on death row. Can we be pro-life with be, without being anti-death? Or, or let's make this even more relevant. We can stand as anti-abortion and also walk through our world insisting, it is my right not to wear a mask. Do we have a consistent pro-life ethic? Conception to grave. 
It is our right. You are correct, but it is not an embodied, consistent ethic. And friends, people don't follow Jesus today in our world, not because of Jesus, but because the church doesn't prove their ethics to be credible. Are you with me yet? Have I offended sufficiently? I hope. Our life together as the church, more than our political opinions shared on social media, must prove credible what it means to follow Jesus in this world. This is the best example I could come up with this week. Anybody remember the song, Whip Nene? Hang with me here. Some of you are like, I got nothing. Go home, Google it. You're going to pick it up. So the height of my wedding officiating was a few years ago when that song came out. And put most simply, it's a song telling you to do the whip and the nene, which is a dance that I could never do. And sure enough, at every wedding I officiated, when that song came on, those who could whip and those who could nene would stay on the floor, the dance floor. And those who couldn't, like me, would revert to our tables and simply enjoy and wish that I somehow had been given the rhythm to do that. Now, what are you talking about? Here we go. Today, it often feels like the church is playing a song that none of the Jesus followers know how to dance to. It's like we're faking it. We would, we would shout about being the moral majority. We talk about how Jesus would, would have welcomed the immigrants or stood up as pro-life. We declare ourselves to be on the right side of racial equality and civil rights. But our intellectual beliefs cost us nothing. We hold our positions without embodying our convictions. And it's time for the church to cease this. That's the second thing about how we embody the kingdom. See, embodying the values of God's kingdom will always, always cost us. It's always going to cost us. The great theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he named this as cheap grace, the belief that we could follow Jesus without personal cost. Jesus talks to his disciples, to his followers, you will have to pick up your cross. Nobody's excited to pick up a cross because the cross leads to death. He understood this as the way that the disciples were wrecked. They were stripped bare. They would lose. Listen, and see how this counters our political beliefs today. We would lose reputation. We would lose status. We would lose influence for the sake of God's kingdom. Do we believe this politically? See, when we look at the Beatitudes, we realize that tension of our citizenship between heaven and between earth, between resurrection and renewal, between the way things are and the way things will one day, praise God, be. So it doesn't make sense to walk around thinking that our theology should perfectly line up with any one political ideology. And yet it happens all the time. Jesus' followers co-opted, being co-opted, or co-opting the democratic, the republican, the progressive, the conservative, the whatever ideology we grow convinced fits our theology perfectly. This is what the Jesus followers of today are doing. Have you ever seen the kid trying to pound the square peg into the round hole? And getting so angry that it just will not fit. See, when we give ourselves to a political ideology without thinking about how it's going to cost us for the kingdom values, we're that same child trying to pound something in a hole that it was never meant to fit because we are that colony in between resurrection and renewal. See, this is what we try to do today. You see, as citizens of the kingdom, we have a call to, I believe this, to always stand outside the lines. We have a call to be outside. We may be Republican, but we must also tell the truth about Republicans. We may be Democrat, but we must also call out the hypocrisy of Democrats. We are a colony within a country. So stop living 
like you belong to any one co-opted place. When we collide against the Beatitudes, we see that when we are poor, when we are mourning, meek, persecuted, that's where we find the blessings, the fortune, the happiness of God's kingdom. Jesus was an equal opportunity offender, you know. He stood up to religious legalism. He called out the Roman Empire's shortcomings. He forgave the woman caught in adultery and then in the next breath said, you're forgiven, but go and sin no more. He always walked in the tension. He was never in the place where he sold out the kingdom values for the sake of simple ideology. Hey, friends, if all you do, listen, please don't miss this. If all you do is, is agree with your liberal friends or your conservative friends, your Trump friends, your Biden friends, you are missing the kingdom of God. And that's the last part of this that I want to say to you today. How we embody the kingdom, the kingdom values. You have to get this. What we do between election days matters more than how we vote on election day. It's so critical that we start to understand this. We, we have our vision here, right? We are a new community finding and following Jesus, what? Beyond Sundays. I thought, man, if I was planting a political ministry, I'd say we are following Jesus beyond election days. That's what I thought. I'm going to stay in the church world, though. What Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes, he embodies everywhere he goes. He is not interested in pithy, poetic points. He's much more interested in helping people remember what the kingdom looks like in their lives together and in their lives as followers of Jesus. He wants to see, as one writer puts it, the formation of a visible, practical Christian community. You see, we will never change anyone by yelling at them about politics. And some of you keep trying it's not working. We will never see someone violent become less violent because we posted an article on their social media. Oh, thanks for sharing the article. I don't feel the need to kill you anymore, right? Like, we, it doesn't happen. We will never see someone racist become less racist because we told them they were racist. We will never see someone arrogant become less arrogant because we told them to vote a different way. It doesn't happen that way. Transformation in people's lives doesn't happen that way. And you know it to be true because you were never transformed by an article on Facebook. You were just solidified in what you already believed. But when someone engages or when someone is engaged by the church, by the Christian community that truly embodies the Beatitudes, when someone experiences that, they can experience transformation, when the violent are loved by the nonviolent people of Jesus, when the racist experiences the beauty of diversity in the church, when the arrogant is served humbly and sacrificially, everything can change. And it isn't about you, it's about we and how we embody the hope of Jesus in spite of the difficulties we face. You know what I love about new community is half of you don't agree with me 100% of the time. I love it. If you all knew where you, you're so nice to each other on Sundays. If you knew where you stood politically, you'd be like, why am I with these people? And the answer is because of Jesus. So yes, vote. Yes, be engaged. If you're called to it, run for office. Don't ask me to support you. I ain't soliciting anybody. But what you embody from Wednesday on, that matters way more than what box you check on Tuesday. We don't often think of the Beatitudes when we describe our preferred candidates. We just don't. We don't look for those who are poor. We don't look for the mourning, the meek, those who are persecuted, though we love to claim that our preferred candidates are being persecuted. Instead, we look for the rich, the powerful, the charismatic. Those are the leadership values we're drawn to. And yet in every position of spiritual leadership I've ever had, those beatitudes are what I've experienced. That's what I felt as a leader. I felt the poverty 
of spirit, not knowing what else to offer. I've grieved over those who walked away from Jesus. I felt meek putting up with really stupid conflict that's cloaked in spiritual language. I've even felt persecuted, and in spite of all those things, I've experienced, honest to God, I've experienced the makarios, the happiness, the fortune, the blessedness that comes through living into the kingdom of God. So let me let me close with this. Friends, we live in an amazing country. I, I've been to several others, and I don't want to live in any of them. I love this place. I love West Virginia. But we have some serious work to do as followers of Jesus. I hope this series has shown you the way of peace and the way of trust in the midst of a chaotic world. I, I hope you feel the tension of your citizenship in the kingdom of God. I hope you are disoriented and messed up for the better in our current world. And yet, I also hope that we recognize this world isn't our home, but it's the place we're called to the work of remaking and renewing. I hope Tuesday is less anxiety-inducing for you, less anger-causing for you, less obsession-focused for you. We may have the same president, and we may have a new president, but our king is still eternal, and we pledge allegiance to him above all else. So these questions, one more time, the band can come. Will you filter your politics through the lens of your faith? Or will you make your faith fit your politics? Will you let your political positions be led by love for the people beside you? Will you give up that desire that all of us intuitively get, that obsession for whoever our king or our queen is, whoever that preferred candidate is, will you give up your desires for that to submit to the king? And then finally, are you willing to embody the values of God's kingdom? Friends, tonight I hope and I pray that you come back and I hope and I pray that you bring somebody with you because tonight we are simply going to sit in a place of worship and we're going to focus in on these beatitudes and we're going to long for the kingdom of God together. I don't know if you feel this, but 2020, as messed up as it has been, it has put in me a hope and a desire for more of God's kingdom than maybe ever before. I miss the people of God gathered. I really do. I miss the things that bring us life. I miss the things that bring us joy. And we have this opportunity when we worship in a space together to gather and long for God's kingdom, to cry out for God's kingdom. And so the journey we're gonna take tonight through music and prayer is that journey of longing. We're gonna put some new longings in us. I think our political world's so messed up because we've got the wrong longings. Did we talk about this this series? When you're really hungry for really good food, a Big Mac may taste good for a little bit, but a steak is way better. I want to long for the right things. I want to long for the kingdom of God. And I'm telling you, our world is longing for a whole bunch of Big Macs for the next three days. Just hang in there. I want to long for the right things. And I want the people of God to gather tonight and long. So I hope you'll come back. Today, we're going to close by continuing to lean into the authority, the sovereignty, the reign of God around us. Let's stand and pray together.